Thank you for listening to Series 4 of Jimmy's Jobs. If you have enjoyed the series, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, as it means more than you realise. And if you want to know about Series 5, do sign up to our mailing list, where we'll be releasing exclusive details. It's available at www.jobsofthefuture.com. The last episode of every season ends up becoming one of our most listened to. So I always like to try and finish with a really strong one. And this is one of our most interesting and thought-provoking interviews that we have ever done. It is with Herman Narula, the founder of a company called Improbable. I got to know Herman when I was in number 10 and some of the conversations that we had were of mind-bending proportions and made Brexit seem a rather simple formality. So I'm excited to bring you this conversation today. Herman and his team at Improbable have raised over $600 million. That's not a valuation. That's just the money they've raised to tackle some of the problems that we go into today. Herman Ruler is the British leader in the metaverse. The term has garnered a lot of attention this year since Facebook rebranded their name to Meta. But as we'll hear, Herman has been doing this for over nine years. And some of the highlights of our conversation today talk about Web3 and how all of this might be a bit closer than we sometimes think and how in some ways that we're already living in it. And Herman makes many thought-provoking points, one of which that stuck with me was that for a lot of the generation growing up now, they are going to earn money online before anywhere else and it's going to kind of replace the paper round he's also really optimistic that because this is an entirely new space that we're creating it's not going to take any jobs in fact it's just going to create more jobs which is very much tunes in with a lot of what this podcast believes that despite the rise of automation and ai the world is getting a better place and there's more jobs being created of variety of different roles but it can be much harder to navigate than when the world is changing so fast and that's what we try and do with this podcast and what we've tried to do over the last four seasons and we even managed to use the case study of the save derby county campaign to demonstrate how some of this might be a lot closer than we think as always we'd love to know what you think so do drop us a line at hello at jobs of the future.co and if you do get chance please do leave a rating. On to today's episode. Before diving in, I wanted to thank our headline partners, The Octopus Group. Octopus is one of Europe's largest and most active venture capital investors. Investing more than 200 million a year, it backs UK entrepreneurs at every stage of their journey. From ideas on a page, right through to IPOs, and has funded some of our nation's biggest success stories, from Kazoo to Depop. Octopus was started 20 years ago in one of the co-founders' bedrooms with one phone line and a copy of the Yellow Pages. Now Octopus is one of the most powerful engine rooms of the UK entrepreneurial community and has backed and developed several unicorns themselves, including Octopus Energy. I am proud that Octopus have backed this podcast since the second series and they are the reason we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders, Chris Hewlett, Simon Rogerson, on to today's show. Herman, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, first question I've got for you, where did the name Improbable come from? Well, you know, when we started uh, in a barn with a few of my uh, <laughs> few of my friends from from Cambridge. The problem we wanted to solve, which actually we only recently solved, which was getting thousands of people into the same virtual world, all interacting together, it didn't feel like a very easy or likely problem to solve. So we named the company Improbable, almost in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, um, which uh, I guess now kind of serves us well. Yeah, and that's a, the one of the things that uh, struck me. You know, you started this business ten years ago with this little under ten, yeah, yeah, little little under ten, and. One of it, yeah, you, you set out to build this plumbing for the metaverse and so on. And there has that has got enormous attention over the last year or so with Facebook's announcement, etc. 
what was it that gave you the initial idea? Honestly, we we grew up in a generation that didn't just play games. We found games to be an extension of our social lives, an extension of you know the things that we did in, our, in the world that gave us fulfillment. We came to school and talked about all the awesome stuff that happened in online games. Rob actually paid his way through college by being an arms dealer in Second Life. So he, he actually earned the entire salary that he needed to do that. And so... You know, the frustration that led us to this as computer scientists were that games just didn't seem to have the scope to actually be these fulfilling third spaces where interesting behavior could happen. And part of that reason was technology. So Improbable is really a distributed systems company. So if you're familiar with all the cryptocurrency stuff happening now, that's all distributed systems. Virtual worlds is distributed systems. And that's the skill set we've been cultivating over the years. How do we solve these really hard problems to build and scale these big systems? And just give us what you think the definition of um, the metaverse is. So I'm glad you asked that because I think this is a very abused term. And maybe before I give my definition, mm-hmm. it's maybe worth justifying why we even need a good definition of this. You know, we have governments trying to regulate. We have investors trying to invest and we have entrepreneurs looking to build businesses. And if we don't define clearly and in a way that you know survives the test of time, a good definition for what this is, where the value will come from, why it's important, then people are going to make some big mistakes in all those areas. You know, with the dot-com boom, everybody had kind of the right idea. The internet was going to be a big thing, but they sort of had the wrong specifics. And that led to a lot of failed companies, a lot of uh, legislators not catching up and a lot of bad analogies applying to the new world, which which creates problems for everybody. So with that in mind, I'd say the best definition I would consider useful would be that the metaverse is not just a better video game. It's not just a virtual space with an avatar that you run around in. Some people have pushed that definition. I think it's, I think it's flawed. The metaverse is specifically the idea that as a society, we can take virtual worlds and spaces and we can start to imbue them with meaning. We can start to decide that the activities that happen in a virtual space are important. They can have real money consequences, real social consequences. And the metaverse is an arrangement of worlds in which value is exchanged to the benefit of each of those uh, ways of looking at the world, each of those realities. So in video games, all you care about is creating entertainment and fun and immersing people in that. With the metaverse, you're really thinking about how you can enhance and extend society in people's lives. Could I meet celebrities and hang out with them in a way that I never could in the real world um, or, or at really big scale? Could I support my football club with thousands of fans all together? Could I build or create or sell artwork um, in a way that isn't tied to just one game but actually you know, is, is, is the basis to build experiences across many different worlds and environments? So... The, the analogy to video games, I think, is is a poor one in a lot of ways. The technology is the same, but the purpose is very different. And humans have always built environments, right? Ever Absolutely. since the first sort of, you know, we had the first agricultural revolution. And this is in some ways just the next extension of it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm writing a book now called Virtual Society all about this topic. And one of the things I identify there is it actually predates agriculture. You know, I'd say that uh, we need to start recognizing that a huge part of how our society actually works, how we create fulfillment and value for people, isn't only in the things we make and buy and sell, but in the world of ideas that we create and extend. So we were just talking uh, before the podcast about football, and I think we, we both agreed that football is really interesting, right? Because it really, really matters who wins the World Cup. But at the same time, it kind of doesn't matter at all. Both are true. Society has decided that that event, that activity is deeply important. And that isn't some mistake. We're not, you know, as football fans, we're not like confused about the meaning of football. It depends if you're a Tottenham supporter, I think you, you might be. But the, the point is more that um, the point is more that we intentionally choose to create value inside this other space. We choose to imbue that world with meaning. And that's how I think how we should think about the coming metaverse economy. We're going to be creating a lot more things like football, a lot more extensions of our society, a lot more a lot more environments that we can become that passionate about and create that much value inside. Um, just want to clarify the record that I'm not a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. I'm a Derby County fan. I, I'm aware of that. I, I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm using the opportunity to bash Tottenham. I don't see why that requires explanation. <laughs> so. um, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Emirates. The, the Emirates, I always think, is a very interesting example of a football stadium that is just partly because it's been recently built is just so acoustically brilliant yeah. as well. And like it is like, but it's a proper it's it is an experience in, in itself going to a game. Yeah, if I get invited to go to the Emirates, it, it almost doesn't matter who's playing. You know, what's funny is I, I actually was not a football fan 
at all until literally my 20s when my brothers forced me to come to game after game after game and sitting there disliking football at a certain point I don't know if it was like 10 home games in I just something changed and I cared I really cared all those other people around me fixing their willpower their attention their minds on the meaning of that environment just kind of won me over um, unfortunately, I became an Arsenal fan during a really bad season. So, it, you know, all I've known is, is is hate and defeat. But there we go. But it is strange, though, isn't it? Because it is it is a kind of like a social contract that you sign up to. I mean, my, my club have got massive difficulties at the moment that I've talked about on the podcast before. But is it is this thing that you go, like, in, in my world, like, seven or eight, and you just almost don't even know what you're kind of agreeing to at that point. You're absolutely right. And, and, and fashion, too, is like that. Mm. You know, I think, um, again, I, I want to really caution listeners and anybody from thinking, from looking too reductively at these parts of our culture, from thinking that they're optional or a luxury or just for fun. You know, they're not. They're genuine extensions of our identity and who we are. Like, think of the value of a mega company like LVMH. You know, where does that value lie? It lies in the belief system, the ideas, the feelings that, you know, are imbued in the objects that they sell and in the world that they create. And, you know, you mentioned your club. Like, that club no longer being with us isn't just like, oh, it's a business choice that's gone or a, oh, great, you know, now, now none of those supporters can just move on to a different club. I mean, that's mm. not how things work. You know, it's it's a, it's almost like national pride. It's it's like that. You know, it's an, it's the invention and creation of these new areas of value. And it'll be a huge, huge change to our economy when this permeates much more because the metaverse is a massive catalyst to this type of human behavior. Yeah, and we'll definitely come on to that. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was, you founded the company nine years ago. What what changes have you seen in that last nine years when it comes to this? So I, I think it's it's worth saying just how bloody hard these problems are. And we laugh a little bit when we see companies now, even big tech companies, sort of hand-waving over how hard it is to build the metaverse. And, you know, when we started Improbable, and even now, like in the state of the art outside of our company, it's like 100, 200 people in a game. And we use a metric called operations per second. So this is the amount of information that's exchanged in the virtual world. And it's relevant over the journey because it's a bit like bandwidth in the internet or processing power. This is the hidden metric that will define whether an application can actually be useful. And so the state of the art right now is about 10,000 operations a second. After nine years, we can do 350 million operations a second. We'll soon be at a billion operations a second. We can, we can take the whole Emirates Stadium and stick it inside a virtual world and, and actually have that be real with everyone talking. And that, led, that required us to invent totally new areas of tech over the last few years. We've invented new machine learning-based bandwidth compression algorithms. We've built rendering technology. We've built a global hosting infrastructure. We've become, along the way, the world-leading provider of um, technical expertise to a lot of different publishers. We work with 60 different companies around the world. Um, and what changed is the world grew around us. You know, When we started off, there was no metaverse, really, or any real talk around it. And I think we've been very fortunate that we were maybe a bit crazy to start the company then and to put as much investment and time into it as we did. But and we now find ourselves in a world which is ready for what we made. What's rendering technology? So just displaying everybody on screen turns out to be really hard. Um, yeah. Actually, just showing the images of a big crowd um, is beyond the capabilities of many modern game engines. So Improbable had to actually invent our own approach to displaying all of those different characters on screen. Why that's important is because in the in the metaverse economy, if you can't see other people, if you can't see the things they're wearing or interact with them, it's all a bit useless. You know, and that's the big that's the big hidden rub in all this. A lot of big companies talking about the new future, but not a lot of actual solutions to these problems. And I think it's probably new businesses, not just improbable, other companies too, that are gonna step into that gap. And that's one of the big things you talked about. Like being on stage at concerts is quite hard to sort of see many people actually. And this is one of the examples of where you can improve entertainment, right? Oh, completely. And not just people being there, but the magic of a direct interaction with the performer. So we put up something um recently, which is a concert we did with a K-pop star at the end of last year as we began testing our technology in, in greater scale. And she was able to hang out with thousands of her fans. And they got into like these fun random games where she grew really big and they all tried to jump up and like climb over her. And like it became this amazing two-way interaction. She was laughing, calling them out. And if you're a fan of someone, you know, you don't come to a concert because you want to see a music video, right? You want to listen to the music. You, you know, you, of course you come for that, but you come because you want 
a chance, a sprinkle of magic, an interaction with other people and with that celebrity. The emotion we want to feel is that feeling of an experience that's really ours. That's what the metaverse is about, presence, not immersion. This is why when companies like Facebook talk about VR, I mean, I'm, I think VR technology is very important and obviously our tech is designed to support that too, but I think that's missing the point. It's not about the world being more photorealistic. It's about the world caring that you're in it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you, you do the, the plumbing for it. Right. So, so yeah. talk us through that. A bit. We do three things. So we, we build a lot of the core technology and infrastructure that listeners probably won't be aware of because it's kind of behind the scenes. Mm. And we support lots of companies in the space, but we're also building our own content in this area, and we'll be talking a bit more about it soon. But you know, taking this technology to and, and enabling new experiences that aren't possible before. And also, we apply the technology, and we've we've talked about this previously, but in areas that might surprise people, like the same technology that goes into supporting that concept is used today you know, in our collaboration with the British government in simulating cities and modeling thousands of soldiers uh, you know, interacting in large spaces. The metaverse isn't just about play. You know, it's, it's, it's about extending these tools to be using in lots of different contexts. And so uh, can you give us some more sort of real-life examples of where it doesn't impact entertainment? So like that modeling of you know, sure. moving 10,000 so, soldiers. You know, imagine you want to bring together um, the entirety of... like, Imagine you want to do a war game that uses two different countries and large swathes of their military to rehearse or to interact or to train in a difficult context. Just look at the way geopolitics exists today and where the world is. Just the act of doing that exercise can be a geopolitical move and it can be it can have undesirable effects. Now, if you can build virtual spaces that can allow thousands of people around the world to interact and rehearse and plan and even gain experience in what could occur in different scenarios, you've built a really powerful tool to help people deal with everything from disaster relief to rollout of, of infrastructure to, to policing to all kinds of things. And then beyond that, you know, we're also in a world where, unfortunately, we're sort of under attack all the time now. Our infrastructure is continually being undermined. And government needs a better map to just be able to even understand what is happening, to be able to really um, track these effects by adversarial countries into, uh, into the networks that we have in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. So that all that work kind of requires the same technology. And where are the opportunities for the UK economy? And um, policy and regulation makes a big part of that. And one of the things that we've talked about a number of times on the podcast is there are sort of opportunities in the new UK regulatory landscape to be nimble oh, with this stuff. Completely, completely. So I think the big opportunity is this. We're going to see an explosion of new companies that are building virtual worlds in which people can actually do work earn an income, earn and trade and have virtual objects, create businesses, and even extend a lot of the valuable activities happening across, you know, UK culture, sport, but beyond that too, companies in the world of remote work, hanging out inside virtual spaces together, uh, you know, interacting with people. I think the opportunities come in creating a sane regulation framework that can give UK companies an advantage in starting uh, these these problems. A great example is cryptocurrency. You know, Web3 and crypto are pretty, I know it's a very polarizing topic, but, you know, being rational about it, you're going to need something like that if you want people to earn money and exchange value inside these virtual spaces. So how can we create a regulatory framework and the right incentives in the UK to encourage investment in this area? And, you know, beyond that, we think about employment. You know, employment law is a great area where, you know, do you have a job if you act as a moderator in a virtual concert? You know, is it is that, do you need an employment contract to, to do that? You know, how, how does how does the part-time labor that happens inside these spaces you know, if I'm a dragon slayer for hire, do I get a pension? You know, how does that how does that work? You know, so you know, I think legislators often seem to be regulating the internet of ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And for once, I'd love it. You know, maybe this could be a good thing. You know, in a in a post uh, Europe world where we could be nimble and actually think about the next ten years rather than the last ten years. You know, I'd, I'd particularly like to see um, a very clear stance on encouraging investment in digital assets um, in the UK a sane tax framework so that, you know, businesses can start and and individuals can be confident in owning, holding and trading those objects. I'd like to see clarifications around employment law. And I'd also like to see, contrastingly, kind of more more aggression around the way we treat big platforms, uh, you know, including any big platforms that might start in the UK. Like, we have to get out of this idea that they're neutral and aren't liable for both the content and experiences that happen on top. You know, if you have a billion users, we need to start realizing you're a country, not a company. And we need government to hold businesses like that to account and force them to create enfranchised opportunities for their user bases to influence what happens in those in those worlds. Totally. So how do you think the, the tax framework could look for it? Well, I think the first thing we need is clarity. You know, like w- when when something is in a smart contract, uh, what jurisdiction is that in? You know, who, who, who how, how do we think about who 
who owns or is a beneficiary of that? You know, how do we think about taxing ownership and transactions around digital assets? Um, also, legislation around um, you know who who is allowed to do things like do coin issues. Like, are they are they, are they should they be regulated like shares or not? Um, I'd like to see the government being really proactive here and creating certainty for entrepreneurs and for businesses. Um, and you know, maybe the right approach is to take a provisional provisional view. You know, can we come up with rules that encourage growth right now? And then we're able to think more carefully about, um, you know, what the steady state looks like in the future. There is also an opportunity as well here for, um, I say this is a free marketeer myself, but for government, one of the challenges that government has at the moment is the tax base is eroding massively, um, partly because you've got lots of older people who aren't paying as much and so forth. And it's a real challenge. But there is a way for governments to get ahead here. Oh, absolutely. Sort of like- absolutely. I mean, the right framework could done virtual experiences in the next five years into an enormous new opportunity for employment and an enormous new tax base. I think Britain should do everything it can to encourage companies attacking the metaverse to be founded here. And the only thing you have to do is to give them clear rules to make that happen and to start getting ahead on these frameworks. But yeah, I, I really believe that's correct. One of the uh, sectors that the UK leads the world in is fintech. And a lot of that is oh, down to the regulatory sandbox and all this effort that's kind of been put forward into it. What would be your recommendations for how the UK could I think we could do something similar. You know, think about the metaverse and virtual assets as living in a similar kind of staged approach. You know, the idea of a sandbox is very appealing. I think fintech's been a big success story. You know, let's extend those ideas. But I'd also like to see more actual, um, more kind of vocal interaction on the topics by the top of government. I think this is what the next generation of businesses is thinking about. And to even it goes quite a long way, even cosmetically, for government to say, look, this is an area we believe in that we want to uh, drive innovation in and that we have some concrete ideas on how to do that with. And just putting together a, yeah, a review we saw the, task force. Exactly. We saw the malarkey about AI, you know, like it mm. became, you know, the word was so abused and leveraged to create a million different incentives and frameworks and, and, and policy discussions. Um, you know, and that had, you know, it was a little bit scattershot, but it actually had some positive impacts as well. I mean, I think the metaverse is just like that. It's another frontier um, that we need to get ahead of. And what what company, what other companies do you think in the UK are doing a good job of this? I mean, you're probably the biggest and the most well-known. I'm not aware of many other UK companies attacking these problems. There are a lot around mm. the world. But, um, you know, it's, it's a very capital-intensive problem set to attack. And it's a problem that requires you to have quite a global reach. So it's not, not that surprising that there are a few of us here in the UK. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how you could try and drive more of it, basically, to um, to do it. But it's a, um, there's well, a imagine the, imagine as an example saying, hey, if you if you do virtual work in a metaverse or in a world that you know there's some really tax advantageous way in which that can work out for people because it's going to be a lot of people's first job instead of a paper route. You know, you might earn a few dollars in a game or a virtual world. You know, imagine if yes. we could create a really nice threshold where. That income's great. You know, you can just have that. You know, and, and that'll encourage people to to actually engage inside those experiences more and more. And then, when really big businesses start, and when when really large employment opportunities exist, the government can reap the rewards uh, in that context. So, you know, that 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 that's just one example. That is such a good point. That sort of that's how a lot of people are going to make their first money, right? And, because... and wherever they are geographically as well. We talk mm. about leveling up the north. Um, you know, jobs in the metaverse, jobs to create art or content or to, you know, or to be performers or to build con- experiences yourself or to build and sell virtual objects. There, wherever you have a laptop, wherever you have a mobile phone, there's a job. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, we can get out of this whole, all the jobs are in one place mindset when it comes to high tech and knowledge work in the UK. Yeah. What was your first job, by the way? This was my first job uh, <laughs> 10 years ago. Literally, yeah. I went straight straight out of college into this and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. It took a long time to to build a team of people much smarter than me to, to help me sort of uh, steer this business. That's such a bold move to make. What were the first hires you, you kind of made? Initially, um, programmers and engineers. I think we overemphasized on, on that. And I think as we grew, we realized we needed to bring in a lot more very diverse kinds of talent. You know, today we have an incredible leadership team. Lincoln Wallen, our CTO, is, you know, from DreamWorks before that. Um, some of our key CFOs, CPOs, all from Disney. Uh, Joe Robinson with this incredible armed forces background running our defense work. And, like, it took a long time to build a culture that was able to recognize people like that and able to bring people like that into a broad church business. Yeah. And tell us about the culture at Improbable because it's um, it, it's it's a unique company, right? Like it's quite hard to sort of well, build it's, it. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the number one value for us is humility and empathy. 
and which might seem a bit strange for a sort of a tech company, which can be all yeah. about you know self-aggrandizement. But I really think when you have very big egos, very smart people, people who've been right at school, right at university, right in their last job, emphasizing the need for them to listen, emphasizing the need for them to take a dispassionate view when it comes to you know appreciating and giving benefit of the doubt to other people in conversations, being humble enough to recognize the value of other people. I think it's really important. Kindness is also really important to me in our culture. Um, it's not a word often used in tech companies again, but I think it's a great word. I think it's, you know, we're in a society where when you build a company, the society around you, particularly for young people, is so violently polarized. You know, we bring people into the business and they have extreme views one way or the other. You know, whatever the topic might be, it could be anything. And they, you know, even I'm even frightened to list a topic here because of how polarized this space yeah. is. But just pick any topic and everyone has extreme views to one side and extreme views to the next. And a lot of my job is getting people to acknowledge that in the pursuit of a mission in today's society, you kind of have to leave your extreme views behind, whatever they might be, and, you know, really find a way to build bridges with other people. And what is the mission? Simple. I think that our lives can be extended usefully and powerfully and beautifully by offering people opportunities in virtual worlds, in the metaverse. You know, Improbable wants to build, you know, an incredible network to power that future. That's what we're here to do. And everything that we do is in aid of that. You and I get this kind of world, right? We're similar ages and we've lived at that almost kind of crossover sort of generation that right at the start of school, like only use books. But by the time we were at university like basically just did everything on computer, right? So I think it makes us quite unique in that sense. Trying to explain this to our parents' generation and so on, and there'll be a lot of listeners on this podcast that try and do that, to the sort of 60-year-old person that's coming towards the end of their career, how does this, how can it benefit them? What difference is it going to make to them? So the first thing I think it does is it just gives them more choices, more opportunities. You know, if you are, um, you know, like, my grandmother's, you know, in her 90s and we hang out on Zoom. Now imagine if we could, you know, perhaps she's, you know, maybe not necessarily right for her, but imagine, uh, you know, older people and younger people being able to freely mix in spaces, sharing a passion together, communicating naturally and doing that at really big scale. It's a very safe place for people to potentially socialize who would never normally socialize. You know, we're in a very divided society other than like, I guess, the military or, you know, that, you know, countries that have... um Countries that have sort of national service, they tend to mix people together regardless of rich, poor, or other backgrounds. The only other place right now, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, how much money you have, what race you are, probably a virtual wealth. It's the only place where you, you're just yourself. Um, you know, and, and I think that's a very good opportunity. I think the other thing it does is it creates totally new investment and culture opportunities uh, you know, for older and younger people. Owning land inside virtual spaces is potentially really interesting. Um, you know, being able to invest in and create businesses. Um, you know, maybe you, you could do a business from home now where you could sell or create mm. uh, clothing or items without the overheads of doing so in the physical world. I also think it's really good for the environment. Um, you know, virtual spaces represent an opportunity to reduce the overhead of a lot of garbage, frankly, that, you know, that afflicts our day-to-day -day lives and causes harm to the environment. Um, fast fashion, you know, lots of consumer products that might be better expressed as virtual goods. And there is some talk lately about the environmental impact of cryptocurrency, for example, and that's real. But I, I wish people would do the measurement more. You know, like the overwhelming use of energy and, and damage to the environment comes from manufacturing and the transport of goods and services. It doesn't come from, you know, from digital services. So I, I, think, I think it pretend, potentially could be part of the solution to a, a bigger transformation of our society. And this is one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, a skin in a uh, virtual game and so on is actually, you know, some people will find that very hard to understand why people want to buy that. But then if you make the context with the existing world, well, people have always wanted to kind of wear designer fashionable labels, right? So that's why they want to do it in a virtual world as well. But actually, that is a lot more friendly for the environment, and, being able to do that. And maybe more interesting too. Like, you know, obviously, I don't think this stuff will completely replace the real world, but I think it'll augment the real world. You know, imagine, I'm just making this up here, but imagine, you know, uh, a watch from Tiffany's, which when I wore it inside a virtual space, a butterfly like follows me around, you know, at the Tiffany Blue, and it has some interactive component to it. It lets artists and creatives express themselves in new ways, like new materials. Um, you know, and again, I think I think the best experience is going to blend the real world and the virtual spaces. Like, I'd love to see thousands of Arsenal fans around the world or thousands of, 
you know, I don't think there are thousands of fans for, for every, every club, but, you know, um, you know, interacting together um, in, a, in a shared space, able to express themselves, shoot off fireworks, the kinds of things that you wouldn't want to do in a stadium, mm. but with the same level of energy and, and magic. I don't think that takes away from there being a stadium and having those experiences. But now imagine the two crowds kind of interacting via screen, maybe, or, you know, or, or challenging each other in some way. It could be really powerful. Yeah, it was. There, there's a couple of things on that, that I think that this world is more closer, actually, than people realize, right? When they see some of the things that are put out there, they this can all seem very sort of far distance. But actually, like to give a couple of examples from my side that I've talked about on the podcast before, we've been having these Twitter town halls with thousands of, of, of Derby fans kind of doing it. And we've had people from all around the world. Literally, if you lay out the map, we've had them from all four corners of the world. We've had them from California, from South Korea, New Zealand, Australia and um, Peru, right? And that's And they're all engaging in this thing. And we have like poets come on and do Derby poems and all of this and it's like there are Derby poems there are Derby poems it's, it's quite alright I'm going to have to look this up I will, I will say <laughs> <to> you, don't, <laughs> don't you worry but it's like and it, but it's it is incredibly kind of emotive this this stuff happening and it makes me think well we're we're already there. Kind we of are. Like just, the powder keg is there waiting to, to go off when the right experiences are in place that allow that to happen. Like, you know, some of the work we're doing now, I'd love to put all those fans in a shared space yeah. where they can actually all talk naturally with their voices, form into groups, chant, watch old derby matches together, whatever it might be that gets them fired up. You know, these collective spaces create power. You know, we need to get comfortable with the idea that groups, crowds, big motions of people, they're a really important part of our society and they haven't typically been in virtual worlds. And how, I guess the, point the tricky bit to sort of work out post that is where how do people engage with this right is it the the headsets which we sort of see how do people i think facebook has a strong interest in pushing headsets because they own a headset company um and so they've tried to make the entire conversation of the metaverse around vr but i don't think that's very useful um you know i think vr can be a part of the experience and will be a big part in the future but really, it's going to allow you to impact it everywhere. Um, you can buy and sell virtual objects on your phone. You can dive into and experience immersive experiences on your laptop with thousands of people in them. You could put on a VR headset and have an even deeper dive. You could interact with web services that allow you to kind of you know, message people as your identity in the metaverse or interact in a contextual way. It's a lot like the internet. It's going to come to us in lots of different ways. So one of the questions that I wanted to, um, to ask you about was that you've raised large amounts of money from various places, you know, 502 million <laughs> from SoftBank, very specific amount, but but more than that, over over 600 million now in total. And how do you value a company like this? I mean, the total addressable market that you talk about it's is colossal. huge. It's right? absolutely colossal. I mean, we're very fortunate in that our business generates revenue, our gaming business will be profitable this year, which is really exciting. Um, and you know, our defense business, of course, is doing a ton of work there as well. Um, we're fortunate because we're, a deep tech company that also generates revenue and has customers and is growing. I think there. Are, I think it, when you make big bets on the future, sometimes you have to choose between revenue and investment. I think we've tried to tread a path where we can build a big, sustainable business, but also invest in technology. Um, in terms of the addressable market, it's not just colossal. It basically reflects every cultural space, music, sports, education, you know, pure entertainment. All of these areas can be disrupted. It's like asking the total addressable market of the internet. And yeah. that's why I think government needs to take it really, really seriously. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not the future we're talking about. It's now. It's happening around us right now. And you gave some good examples of it. Um, you know, and, and, and I also think it's a great opportunity for new companies. These existing behemoths have huge problems adjusting to the metaverse. Mm. Uh, you know, the advertising business model probably won't be the business model of the metaverse because it kind of takes you away from experiences. Yeah. It, it probably won't be something regulators are comfortable with these big companies fully owning. So I think it, it, there's a lot of opportunity for new businesses. And on this, one of the explosions that has been seen in the last 18 months, NFTs, for example, and one of the key things around NFTs is scarcity. And how do you see that playing in this new I, I think it's a really important part of the story. So I, I'll, I'll sort of qualify this by saying, as a technologist, there's obviously a lot wrong with the current implementation of blockchain and NFTs. These are first iterations of very complicated technology, mm -hmm. and they'll improve rapidly. But what we can see is consumers and businesses are definitely captivated by the idea of really owning virtual objects and being able to not only you know, bring them from experience to experience, but make their own or compose them or add value to them. Like, 
I'd like to see a scenario where I could have a ball thrown at me by Lionel Messi inside a big meetup, and then he signed it, and now that virtual object is mine, and it's a piece of memorabilia, and I can do something with it within the space. You know, all of that is feasible, but all of that does require us to have some kind of a basis to own things between games and worlds, mm-hmm. and to be able to, you know, add to them and grow them. And that's the promise of Web3. That's what it is. It's democratizing the underlying ownership. And remember the alternative. The alternative is one big company controls everything. Those are sort of our two options here. And that latter example is is not good for anyone. And I think when legislators think about crypto, they shouldn't only think about the possible harm. They should think about the risk of, of it not taking. And we're still stuck in this horrible situation of, as, as Britain, you know, effectively being run, our digital lives are run by a bunch of foreign companies. Yeah. You know, we have, which we have absolutely no say over. How do we learn the mistakes of Web 1, Web 2, etc.? And what can we do different this time to ensure that, it's, that it is more of a democratically owned system? I think the key is that we need to encourage, we need to start by thinking about how we can encourage businesses to build sustainable value on platforms rather than the platforms taking all the value. And so one of the first lessons that I, you know, that I think companies like us are adopting is, okay, what is the right path to enable a business to actually feel like they have an investable proposition? How much information do they need to own? Do they need to own their user? Do they need to interact directly with them? What kind of control do they need of the technology that they run on top of? So we need to build systems that are much more encouraging to businesses to actually have a viable path forward. I think we also need to take a hard stand on who owns data and who owns, uh, who owns the virtual objects and experiences that you, you create as a user. You know, remember, you, with Facebook, you're not the customer, you're the product. You're making the value for that company. And so I think companies like that either need to change or be forced to change to recognize the value that users are bringing. And business models need to spring up that pay users for the contribution that they bring to these worlds. Again, this is where I think Web3 and crypto can really help um, because it makes it easier to do it, but it's just one way of doing it. The other big lesson, I'll just throw one final one in, is, you know, let's not treat all tech companies equally. A lot of the problems that we talk about as problems of the internet are not problems of the internet, they're problems of Facebook. And I think we need to start recognizing big tech is not a homogenous block. These are different types of businesses with different values and different actions that they're taking, and government should treat them differently. Yeah, well, I totally agree on that side. Um, I really wanted to just focus on the on the jobs bit now because sure. this, for me, is one of the the key opportunities that governments all around the world are struggling to deal with. Is you know the rise of automation and and all this. How do you get people in in good jobs? Despite all that, over the last 20 years, you know, we have actually got the highest levels of employment ever. So it's worth starting with, with that. But where do you see the jobs being created in this new world? So many places. But to begin with, I think content. Um, you know, This new world is going to let anybody potentially create content that could become part of a virtual world and to make money both directly by selling it and then through residuals. So NFTs are the first step in that, but it's going to get a lot more complicated than that. You know, and that means individuals starting potentially global brands. Look at Bored Apes. You know, that's now become a global brand started by a handful of people. Um, you know, and love it or hate it, it's, it's clearly captivating people's attention. So the barrier to entries to creating commercial art are going to go to zero. The upside of that commercial art, if it interoperates correctly with experiences, will be very high. And that's one area. The second area is, weirdly, we're going to need more humans. And that's because a lot of the value created in a virtual space comes from the inherent investment we all make in that social space. We don't want to watch football matches played by robots. It's interesting that they're played by humans, right? I don't want to be in a crowd of robots. I want to be in a crowd of humans because I want the feeling of relatedness that comes from meaning something to other people. So the metaverse is unlikely to see automation, not because it's not, well, it will see some, but not because it's not easy to do or hard to do technically, but because the value really lies in the authenticity of the fact that you're interacting with so many other people. It's a difference between a single play game and a multiplayer game. Uh, you know, it's just, we inherently value that more as a society. So yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be only good from the perspective of jobs. I don't see a lot of real world jobs being lost because of this, because it, it's new territory. And you talked about earlier, there being a steward uh, at a football match, concert, whatever. How does that work in terms of the kind of policing of a stadium? That's a great example. Like, we're one of the first companies to even be able to have stadium-scale crowds. So to start yes. with, I'll say the reason this problem hasn't come up is because everybody else has 100 people in a room. You don't really need, you know, moderation there. Because so, that's like the limit on Fortnite, right? Yeah, Isn't it? 100 yeah. people. So, so once you can hit these numbers in this scale and everyone can talk, then you absolutely need human moderation because, you know... What happens if someone goes completely, you know, completely crazy or starts, you know, you need, of course, you need tools to block bad actors and for people to moderate their own thinking. But you also need a real culture of community, of moderation, of people who are there not only to 
make sure people are behaving within the rules of that environment, but also to create greater entertainment, you know? Um, how fun to have guides that can bring you into different games and experiences. And because these worlds economically can support a large number of people interacting, they can create opportunities for jobs. I don't think 100% of users are going to get paid. That doesn't make any sense. But if we look at free-to-play gaming, you know, the majority of the revenue comes from a small percentage of users. With that model, I think we could see a world where, say, 1%, 2% of all the users are actually earning an income, maybe enough to be a part-time or even full-time job. Yeah. Now, if you're a carer, if you're at home, if you don't have, if you're in, uh, if you're in university, or if you're moving around, or if you have other limitations in a conventional job, this could be a really great way for people to earn money. Yeah, no, I don't think it's really, um, it's really exciting on that side of things. Can you give us some? What other examples could you see happening in ten to fifteen years' time? Virtual real estate. You know, I think it's a little early now with some of the investments people are making, but I do see the benefit in and selling and cultivating and building experiences that are situated in in contexts like space where where real estate can become more valuable. I see a whole new generation of celebrities who's um, you know in the same way that colored and talking movies resulted in new skills being valuable for celebrities. Right now you've got to talk, you have to have a voice, a stage presence. And the same way that television meant politicians have to learn new skills. I think massive interactive spaces are going to create a whole new generation of content creators, performers. Um, you know, the only people... And it that, is, and that's, know, what in, like, that's what influencers are as well, right? Like, in a sense, yeah. I, yeah, they're like entertainers, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and people exactly. have always wanted to be that. Exactly. And that market is just growing and growing and growing. You know, everything... Today, in today's narrative about progress and technology can be deeply gloomy. And I think it's a little bit because we're at that stage of the industrial revolution where we've got the smog and the workhouses and it's just, it's not capital, it's not looking great in terms of the, yeah. you know, if you think about the early industrial revolution and how that felt. And we're yet to see the sort of green shoots of a genuinely equitable and, and kind of expansion to people's everyday lives and their economy made possible by this kind of technology. But I do think that's where we are heading now. Yeah, and it's... I think, you know, the Sunday Times did a big piece on kind of Facebook and um, the metaverse and kind of talking about some of the, the the sort of the bad actors that you said. And how can we, you know, how can we sort of stop that happening when you talked about preventing bad actors? Yeah, I think we have to look at the existing problems in Web2 and ask why they aren't solved. You know, mm. why is misinformation such an issue on Facebook? If I put up copyrighted information, that's taken down, you know, that hour, that minute, Right. Yet Facebook doesn't seem to care about other types of misinformation. And we know from leaks from the company and beyond that this business has taken an intentional decision to put its profits and its its ability to reach users above what's best for everybody. And that's yeah. not only Facebook. I think we have to, you know, we have to create incentives for companies and in the business models that that are actually around fulfillment rather than just grabbing people's attention. The good news is the metaverse supports that. You know, you generally make money in video games through long-term engagement, not just by making people angry. Yeah. And this is where the the, the unit metrics of entertainment and games are so interesting, right? If you buy a book, on average, it takes 10 hours to read it. And an average price of a book is a tenner, let's say, or around that. So that's £1 per hour of entertainment. If you do that with a computer game, you know, you spend 50 to £60 on a computer game. Chances are you end up spending more hours on that. Hundreds of hours. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but you gain all kinds of fulfillment. You know, there are people who play a game for 10 years, you know, making friends and interacting inside that world. Look at games like World of Warcraft. So, yeah, I think we should get away from the idea that games are just distractions or linear entertainment. They're a whole other world. And we've also... The UK has always led the world at this stuff, right? Has been very good at the kind of forefront, you know, whether Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, like all these things through throughout the years. It's almost more of a question for me, frankly, about how we get governments to take it more seriously because Well we let go of that advantage. Um you know, yeah. we got we got kind of undercut on video game taxes by Canada and there were other other pushes and you know, I don't think the games industry in the UK is as big as it could be. Mm. And I think government has been hesitant about you know advantaging it and i think it should because the video game industry is going to be the basis for this new world of the metaverse yeah um what roles are you hiring for right now every, every role all the time uh no we're always <laughs> was going out but you know, engineers uh programmers specialists that understand this type of technology uh i mean we're, we're a fairly a fairly large business now and so we're reorienting a lot of our skills actually around uh some of the new opportunities in the metaverse now that our technology is more mature and what how, how many people are you employing now well almost a thousand people yeah i mean that is that is incredible which says the amount of the amount of roles and congratulations and well done on that as well it should be said but what if you were kind of you know 22 in 22 and where would you be 
looking? Where would you be training your skills to kind of be? Oh, for me personally, I mean, I've literally started coding again and gone back into the world of, of blockchain. Um, but just so you have it, personally? Yeah, I just find it really interesting. Not not for the company. I'm not good enough to code it in Probable. Uh, the <laughs> standards, they've left people like me well behind. Uh, you know, I'm not, not, not allowed to go near any kind of like actual production code. But no, I personally am really interested in that technology. I think that the skills around um, building these types of hard systems, they require a really different kind of thinking to what people have typically leveraged. And so there are new programming languages people are using to build blockchains. There are wholly new schools of thought around how to scale and build these algorithms. That's really interesting stuff. If I was 22, I'd work on that. And so how do you go about and do that? Because I can imagine a lot of people listening to this might think, well, I wouldn't mind spending a couple of hours just on that. Google is your friend. You know, there's a million tutorials now. You know, I would, I would, you can, you can, in an afternoon, you can go from nothing to like building an NFT or messing around with smart contracts or even downloading a game engine like Unity or Unreal and learning how game development works. Um, you know, th- these are all really easy things to do. They're very well documented. Um, it's kind of amazing how much you can just learn by yourself at home now. Yeah, yeah. And Roblox as well is a classic. Oh, great example. Yeah. Example of it as well. And so we'll just run into a few quick fires. Bored apes or crypto punks? Bored apes for sure. Gotta just look cooler. You can't, you can't compare the two. Come on, gonna in, I'm going to get in trouble now. But yeah, Bordeaux. But I'm biased. I, I, I know the Bordeaux people, and they're just great. Like yeah. yeah. Do you, do you own NFTs? Then? No comment. Uh, this is such a holy war topic. I, I'm just going to be like, no comment. <laughs> Fair. We'll, we'll let you. Uh, we'll let it's you. It's weird, though, isn't it? How, how polarizing some of the stuff has become. Like even at my company, as we've started to have conversations about, you know, crypto technology and how that relates to what we do. Very polarized topic. There are people who probably think it's more controversial to work in crypto than to do defense work. Yes. Which is a weird, a weird different difference. I think society is really, for whatever reason in the world of, I mean, Twitter right now is like a flame with, with fights over this stuff. You know, there are companies making declarations that they think the stuff is, is, is bad and good. I think a lot of this is, is dealing problems. I do think the yeah. technology is so early. It's just all so early. You know, NFTs won't really be a thing for 24 months. I know, but I, I worry. I worry that people they just don't. They can be very. People can be quite close minded about some of the stuff, and they just can't. And look, I think some of the valuations in F, NFTs are like of course. crazy, yeah, right? Of but course. but I can I can see where the value comes, and fundamentally, it's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. That may well not be the same in two, three years' time. But yeah, I just think we're all we're all very quick these days to pass judgment on everything we see. Um, you know, we've been conditioned yeah. to have, you know, to have very strong opinions. It's not very popular anymore to take a view of wait and see or to gather more information or to take a more considered view. I'm neither very pro or anti NFTs. I think they're a tool. They solve a problem um, yeah. in the context of sharing value between games. But, you know, they, they, they aren't well implemented yet. What's your favorite esports play? I was always a massive Halo fan, so I'm going to keep saying Halo. But these days, of course, I'm, I, I don't have as much time for that as I wish I could. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and what's, what's your best moment that you've seen on Halo on, like, YouTube or something? It's like a million. You can't, you can't ask me a question. It's like, <laughs> what's the best football you've ever seen? I mean, come on. That's like a, it's a big question. Um, I, I'd say, look, yeah, it, it, you know, the feeling you get when you play an experience and really feel like um, something magical has happened, something that you know happens one in a million times. I think that can be quite powerful in games like that. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite game growing up? Neverwinter Nights, role-playing game. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it was like a very simple proto-virtual world. Yeah. You had to stay in character throughout. And it was just a thousand people and you're typing and kind of playing um, or, or in the entire world, not in, not in one space. And I think I opened a bank in it. Wow. Yeah, as a pirate. That was weird. That was good fun. <laughs> I actually offered mortgages. I gave a mortgage to a wizard once. He never paid his previous. Uh, yeah, it was a real issue to arrest a wizard. And what was the first video game you ever played then? Cannon fodder. Oh, yeah. Like 19, I want to say 1995. I don't know. I can't remember now. But yeah, a really, really early game. You had to do it on DOS in uh, on your computer and kind of like yeah, there was yeah. no graphical windows. Yeah, I remember. It was all about, yeah, basically like the first shoot em kind of game. It was wasn't really it? Old. it was very controversial at the time. Yeah. Yeah, everyone was like, it was like these tiny little images moving around and shooting guns. And people thought it was going to be like the corruption of the youth, this intense morality. You fast forward 20 years to like super hyper realistic Call of Duty. And uh, yeah. But it's the same though, isn't it? It's like the same as when this first came out in movies, like back in the 80s, right? Yeah. Like it's the people same People thought debates. novels would corrupt the youth. There's an ancient Egyptian myth around writing, which says it'll destroy our memories. You know, like we just... Anytime we take a step forward as society, there's always, there's always, and rightly so, there's always doubt and skepticism. Um, 
We're doing it, making a really rubbish job of these being quick, <laughs> quick fire. Right, I've got, I've got a bit quick. <laughs> well, Mario Kart or Mario World? Mario Kart, of course. Ah. Um, one game you'd take to a desert island? Ah, oh, that's a tough question. If, I mean, if you need something to spend time on for hours on end, Warhammer Total War. Yeah. You'll be fine. You'll, that'll, that's a good 10 years of your life <laughs> covered. You know, you surface for air every now and then, but you're good. If you could go back in time, we've asked this to a few guests, right? So it's not just specifically you. Like, if you could go back in time for 24 hours and witness something, when and where do you think that would be? You know what? I would love to go back in time to the party on VE Day in London. That sounds like it would be the most incredible 24-hour party with such objective relief. Like, I would love to be in that party. That is a great answer. And, of course, you're (laughs) trying to build all this stuff, right, which is why it's so exciting that it could happen. Um, Your book is out. um, Later this year. Later this year, Virtual Society. Another book that people could read on this stuff in the meantime that's particularly good? I recommend reading about um, psychology, self-determination theory. There's some great books on the topic, and it's such an important field on the basis of what makes the metaverse valuable. Why do people find fulfillment in virtual experiences? You'll get the answers in that branch of psychology. Brilliant. Self-determination theory. Herman, thanks so much for doing this. It's been amazing to kind of pick this conversation up from where we were in number 10 and so on. And it's like amazing to kind of see everything that you're doing. So let's stay in touch on it all. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did with Herman and leave feeling invigorated and optimistic about the future. Now, we recorded this back in early February, before the Russians invaded Ukraine. And so that is why we didn't really delve into that topic in a bit more detail. But I know Herman's team will be watching how this episode does on socials. And he has said that he would like to return at some point. So if you enjoyed it, why not post about it and tag us in it? We are at Jimmy's Jobs on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Or, of course, sending it to a friend or a WhatsApp group is always really appreciated as well. This series for Jimmy's Jobs, launching with Rishi Sunak at the beginning of the year, has undoubtedly been a breakout series for us. And we now have tens of thousands of you listening in each month. There are many different ways of trying to monetize and make a podcast sustainable. There's lots of podcasts out there at the moment, as I know you all know yourselves. What we've tried to do is work with like-minded partners that share our ethos about the future and about the positivity of it. So that includes the Octopus Group and the National Farmers Union. And we work with them to create great content that explains the future of various sectors. If you're listening and would like to get involved with us, and perhaps profile your company, your sector, then do drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Podcast partnership and podcast business models are undoubtedly a very new way of engaging with audiences. And therefore, the different models haven't quite been cracked out yet. So we inevitably need to have a few conversations about the way that they could work. But myself and the team here are committed to bringing you great content and we'd like to bring it to you on an even more regular basis. But for that, we need to find a model that works for people's time. So if you've got ideas and would like to partner with us, please do drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. But thank you for listening and thank you for making this such a great show.